Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles with me tonight to 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 13. We have a special chapter tonight, I think, in terms of its looking back and looking forward at the covenant faithfulness of God. 2 Kings chapter 13. And once again, we'll hear a lot of names beginning with J, <laughs> and we can lose sight of who's who. I want to encourage you at the beginning of my message tonight, I'm going to try and orient us and try to give us a big picture and then a, a more specific idea, overview of what is going on in this chapter. But chapter 13 primarily has to do with two kings of Israel in the north and God's faithfulness in light of that. So let's begin in chapter 13, verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel at Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Aram, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz entreated the face of Yahweh, and Yahweh listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Aram oppressed them. And Yahweh gave Israel a savior, so that they came out from under the hand of the Arameans, and the sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, with which he made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained standing in Samaria." For he did not leave Jehoahaz any people for the army except 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Aram had caused them to perish and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did in his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And Joash, his son, became king in his place. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash... And all that he did and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they, not, uh, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die. So Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father... My father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. Then Elisha 
placed his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the window toward the east. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, Yahweh's arrow of salvation, even the arrow of salvation over Aram, for you will strike the Arameans at Aphek until you have consumed them. Then he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stood still. So the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have consumed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. And Elisha died. And they buried him. Now the marauding bands of the Moabites would enter into the land in the spring of the year. Now it happened that they were burying a man. And behold, they saw a marauding band and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he became alive and stood up on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But Yahweh was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not bring them to ruin or cast them from his presence until now. Then Hazael king of Aram died, and Ben-Hadad his son became king in his place. Then Jehoash, Jehoash the son of Jehoahaz, took again from the hand of Ben-Hadad the son of Hazael the cities which he had taken in war from the hand of Jehoahaz his father. Three times Joash struck him and recovered the cities of Israel. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the same God, the God of Elisha, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word once again. And we pray that tonight, to your dear sheep gathered here, that you would impress upon hearts once again your character, that we would be warned against sin, and that we would be wooed once again by your love to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a little difficult, even as you're reading the text, to get, not to get confused between Jehoahaz, uh, Jehoash, who's sometimes called Joash, and, and get lost in the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah, and often they have the same names. And just for a moment, then, I just want to step back from the text a little bit and orient you big picture quickly, I want to remind you that at the end of chapter 13, when we are told that verse 22, God would not bring them to ruin or cast them from his presence until now. When is the now? When is the now that he's referring to? The now that he's referring to is, can you just turn me down a little bit, Nathan, sorry. The now that he's referring to is after the days when Israel has been uh, taken off by the Assyrians when Babylon has crushed Judah and Jerusalem, and the now is from the days when likely the people of Judah and some of the people of Israel are scattered, and they're looking back on a few hundred years, and they're asking the question, how is it that the God of Israel let this happen? They're trying to understand their history. 
and their learning. So that's the perspective. That's the that's this vantage point from which the author, the Holy Spirit, ultimately, but has us looking back on Israel's history. We're looking from the vantage point of Israel in the north has already been judged by Assyria, and Judah in the south has also been judged. And we're learning how is it that this came to be. But that's not all. We're not only learning how it is that Israel and Judah were judged and hauled off. By the time that this uh, chronicle of Israel's history, both in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, there are prophets around like Daniel and another strange prophet in the north named Ezekiel. Maybe you've heard of him. And God has him act out some rather strange prophecies of 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 uh, what God will do and and uh, we scratch our heads and we understand that Ezekiel is one of the inspired books of the Bible but we have a sense when we read through Ezekiel I'm not sure I really want to meet this man Um, (laughs) a prophet of Israel that is just uh, well uh, sent by God and one of the messages that you remember that God gave to Ezekiel Many years later, after our text tonight, we're tonight, this text is around, oh, we're approaching around 800 years before Christ. Ezekiel is, a, is about 200 years later, around 600 years before Christ. And uh, we're wondering, uh, how is it that, that God can make a promise to Ezekiel, like he does, and to Israel in Ezekiel 37. Now just turn there with, with me for a moment. Again, we're looking, we're considering the vantage point of the original readers of this text, the original audience. And Ezekiel is a prophet in the days of the exile, when first or second kings would have been written. And in the days of Ezekiel, God would say to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, In verse 32, I'm sorry, verse 3, God would say to Ezekiel, considering Israel, well, he shows him a scene, a vision of all these bones in a valley. It's a scene of a great slaughter, like a great army, and the bodies have just been left out there, and there's a bunch of dry bones just out on the arid desert floor. And God says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Verse 3, and Ezekiel says, I answered, O Lord Yahweh, you know. (laughs) Um, That's a safe answer. And then God says, it makes it very clear in verses 11 through 14 that this vision is a vision of Israel. Verse 11 of Ezekiel 37, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now that is audacious right there. Because this is, this is in the 500s, before the birth of Christ, and Israel was destroyed in about 150 years earlier by the Assyrians. I mean, they're gone. And God's saying, this is the whole house, Israel in the north, Judah, these bones. And God is insisting, verse 11, These are the bones of the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. 
Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and then you will know I am Yahweh. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it, declares the Yahweh. By the way, that hasn't happened until this day. Israel has not been reconstituted as a nation in their land. Modern Israel, I'm not saying, is not connected but that cannot be the fulfillment of that promise. So from the vantage point, 2 Kings is written from the vantage point of many years later. Israel in the north has already been carried off. Judah has been destroyed. And God is still promising through his prophets like Ezekiel that he will restore Israel. Now keep that in mind. Maybe some of you have already made a connection with chapter 13. Some of you are thinking, Pastor Gabe's going off on a tangent. Maybe. I don't think so. We'll see. So that's the big context. I, I, that's, that's many years after. I, for a moment, big context, and we're going to come down to the text. Many years earlier, before Elisha and these days of Israel and Judah, way back, and you don't need to turn there, but way back in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, when God stood before Moses God passed in front of Moses, and when God declared his name, he declared his name as Yahweh, Yahweh God, listen, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and guilt, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's his name. That's his character. Remember that. So the character of God, gracious, compassionate, yet not letting the sins go unpunished. Many years later, the God who declares that his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is such that he will fulfill the promise to Israel and Judah. And now we come closer to the text, chapter 13. So that's the bigger context. Now as we come to chapter 13, I just want to orient you briefly. The chapter can largely be cut up into, well, don't cut it, but you know, divide it in your mind into two main parts. The first part basically is the two faithless kings of Israel. Two faithless kings of Israel. Uh, one of them named Jehoahaz and his son named Jehoash. And we learn of these two faithless kings of Israel. Surprise, surprise, surprise. We're we're not surprised by now that king of Israel in the north equals faithlessness and apostasy. But those two faithful kings of faithless, faithless kings of Israel are also presented with one unchanging, compassionate God. And that's the God of Israel. So that's the first part. Second part, verses 14 through 19. The first part, verses 1 through 13. And then the second part, verses 14 through 25, we learn of dying Elisha, we learn of dead Elisha's bones, and we learn of Elisha's word. So let's move now directly into the text. First in the first part, in verses 1 through 13. We're introduced in chapter 13, verse 1, to another king of Israel in the north. 
Remember, Israel in the north is where we had Ahab and Jezebel. This is where the prophet Elijah and then his protege, his disciple Elisha, both primarily ministered, is up in the apostate, blasphemous, idolatrous, wicked northern tribes of Israel and the kingdom. And so we're not surprised to learn that that this Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became Israel king over Israel at Samaria, verse 1, and he reigned 17 years. And we're not surprised, verse 2, that he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin. Now, now that's, who's this Jeroboam guy? Do you remember him? Early on, after Solomon, when the kingdom split Jeroboam was in the north and he was the first king of Israel in the north and God had actually uh, used Jeroboam as a tool of judgment but Jeroboam way back when decided was very pragmatic and he thought to himself well if the people in my nation in the north still go down to worship in Jerusalem in the south they'll turn back to the king of Judah and my head will be on a platter. So he determined to himself, I'll make not just one, but two alternatives to the temple in Jerusalem. And in contrast to that stuffy, strict religion there down in the south, I'll give the people what they want. I'll give them a God they can see. Not in one place, but in two places. Remember the two golden calves? That's the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. He's the character who came up with that plan. And remember, when he presented the golden calves in two different places, why did he do that? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to find the time to worship Yahweh. It's, it's inconvenient. And um, that's the first step towards online worship, is the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. I'm serious. Uh, it's the same spirit. Right? Uh, boy, I just can't get myself out of my lazy, my, my lazy boy. I mean, if you literally can't get out of the house, that's one thing, but I, I digress. So it's the, sons of, the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were those golden calves. And all these years later, uh, this Jehoash, Jehoahaz is following in that for 17 years. But in verse 4, we learn that after he was being harassed by this Haziel, king of Aram, who was sent by God as God's judgment. And that had been prophesied many, many years earlier through Elijah and Elisha. Look in verse 4. He entreated the face of Yahweh, and Yahweh listened to him. Yahweh listened to him. This rascal. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Aram oppressed them. And Yahweh gave Israel Savior. We, we don't know exactly who that Savior was. Maybe it was Elisha. Maybe it was actually the king himself. But the point is, is like in the days of the judges, God looked on these apostate, faithless people that he had made a covenant with, and he looked on them according to his name. Gracious, merciful, compassionate. Amazing. So there's our first faithless king, and the first glimpse of the unchanging, compassionate, covenant God. The second scene is of his son, Joash. I'm sorry, Jehoash. I get the 
Jehoahaz, Jehoash, and Joash, confused. So Jehoash is the second king we're looking at in the north of Israel, and his father reigned 17 years. Jehoash, the son, reigned 16 years. Do the math, so that's a pretty significant stretch of time. And surprise, surprise, verse 11, he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin, but he walked in them. (sighs) One of the things that's reinforced in this chapter is the stubborn persistence of sin. It is is stubborn. It is persistent. Um, That's the truth in in the lives of some that we love, we, we wonder how it is that some people that we love can just persist in self-destructive sin. Whether it be enslavement or addiction to one substance or behavior or another, that it's evident to everyone around them, maybe even their body, that this sin that they are giving themselves to is utterly destroying them. But that's the persistence of sin. And sadly, we know that kind of stubborn persistence of sin, don't we, in our own hearts. Even though we who are made alive in Christ are born again of the Spirit and have a new principle within, sin within is is still like a weed that just won't go. Um, Japanese knotweed, I've used this illustration before, but it's a really good illustration for sin. Japanese knotweed otherwise known as, you know, bamboo. Um, I don't know what you call it. That stuff, good luck trying to kill it. They have studied it. They have put all of science to try to kill it. And you can, you can put nuclear waste on that stuff practically. And just a tiny little speck of it. And it will sprout out and it will grow up. Um, the only way you can try to kill it is by putting down a, a, a dark tarp of, of uh, you know, some black plastic and you, you can try to subdue it and keep it at bay. But what's going to happen? It's going to find its way out to wherever the edge of that black plastic is and it's going to start sprouting up over there. Um, last summer, I think it was, we were up in, in Rockland, Maine just walking around and, and we were going along a brand new section of, of downtown and it's and there's some very nice high-end art museums these days there. And, uh, and they had just done this brand new street. And they put down new, new brand new cement. And I'm sure a lot of money was spent on that. And sure enough, coming up through just a teeny tiny crack in this brand new, rather thick cement was just a little sprout of Japanese knotweed. It had been there for generations And you can come in with all the money you want and try to put down concrete and bury the stuff and it's going to break through. Sins like that. And that was like that in Israel in the north. Even with the grace of God and sending Elijah and Elisha, that sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, persisted. Those golden calves just wouldn't go. They not only had a grip on the hearts of the kings, they apparently had a grip on the heart of the people. And yet, God still was persistent in his compassion. God still was faithful to his people. He heard their cry. 
Well, these are the first two kings, the two faithless kings of Israel, and their faithlessness and the stubbornness of sin stands as a backdrop to highlight the amazing covenant grace and faithfulness of God. You'd think God would just be like, I am done. And you would think all the years later when Assyria would come that God would say, I'm done, done, done. And yet all these years later with Ezekiel, we find God still persisting even more than the most stubborn persistent sin. God is, I say this with reverence, I hope it isn't irreverent, but God is more persistent than Japanese knotweed. And his covenant love will not fail to sprout up wherever his heart is moved in compassion towards his people. Well, part two tonight, verses 14 through 19 now. And here's where we, our, our interest is maybe peaked a little bit more naturally because we've been following Elisha for a long time. And I'm going to miss, we're, we're moving on tonight from Elisha. My brother's name is Elisha. Um, when we were mad at each other, he'd call me Gabrielle and I'd call him Elisha. But his name is Elisha and uh, Eli. And uh, <laughs> this is a complete side, but his son, my nephew, we're so excited, thankful. Uh, his name is Isaiah and he is engaged to a young lady whose nickname is Ellie, Eli. That has nothing to do with the text. Um, So, Elisha. So I'm going to miss studying Elisha. But here we learn in chapter uh, 13, verse 14, that Elisha became sick with the illness with which he was to die. Prophets get old. Prophets die. Even the most powerful of them. So, Joash. Now, here's one of those two rascally kings of Israel. This is the son. This is the the second uh, character we just studied in the part one. This is the guy who reigned for 16 years, and he apparently knows enough that if Elisha is dying, the man of God, that they're in trouble. They may be knee deep in apostasy and Baal worship and Asherah worship and golden calf worship up north, but there's still, uh, there's still, uh, 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 the word just passed and went out of my mind. They are still, uh, it's not supernatural, they are still superstitious enough. <laughs> superstitious enough that if the prophet of God is dying, they can put two and two together and say, wow, we're in trouble. Because Elisha is so closely identified with Yahweh, the true God of Israel, and with Yahweh's word. And they have seen him work in power. And did you catch in verse 14 that the king of Israel cries out to dying Elisha what Elisha cried out to Elijah, the prophet, before he was taken up into heaven in a chariot? Did you remember that? And, and apparently the saying meant, you've been, used, you've been used of God in a particular way. What is going to happen to Israel and her armies if you die and if you go? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. It is a slight encouragement that this faithless king of Israel is humbled with fear at the thought of Elisha dying and the impact on his armies that he comes and he makes a visit 
And he essentially says, I don't know what I'm going to do if you die. Now, I think most of us, if we were Elisha, we wouldn't even let that king through the door. But Elisha is as his God, and his heart is turned towards Israel in the north. Think about it. Elisha's whole ministry has been to a people who, by and large, completely refuse what he's taught. And his whole life and his whole ministry, for the most part, he's seen Israel apostate. So Elisha has a word from the Lord. This whole bow and arrows business is a a prophetic picture that apparently has been given to him by the Holy Spirit. This isn't any, you know, mumbo jumbo or magical, you know, thing. thing. This is God by his spirit giving to Elisha a prophecy and giving to the king a very visual picture of God's grace. And so he takes a bow and arrows and he tells them to shoot it out the window. Elisha, verse 16, places his hand on the king's hands. Another sign of grace. These filthy, idolatrous hands of the king of Israel. And says, shoot. And with that shot, verse 17, he declares Yahweh's arrow of salvation, even the arrow of salvation over Aram. For you will strike the Arameans at Aphek until you have consumed them. And we, we struggle with that a little bit because we live in the day and age of name it and claim it. And, you know, we have false prophets going on preachers around today. And you just claim and you just say with as much you know, emotion as you can, I'm going to have a million dollars next year. And, you know, I believe it and I claim it. And, of course, that's nowhere taught in the scriptures. We need to remember that Elisha is a true prophet of the Lord. He is a vehicle for the word and the will of God. So what he is saying is a revelation from God. And it's another indication of the unchanging, compassionate, covenant God of Israel. Even though this king is walking in the ways of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, even though he has walked in them, at the slightest indication of inclination towards Yahweh, towards the true God, Yahweh responds with grace. He loves his people still and shows the king of Israel a sign of his grace, the promise of victory. I mean, the Arameans have just been pummeling Israel. We learned that back in the first part. I kind of skipped over it. But I mean, things are so bad that they are down to, verse 7, 50 horsemen. Ten chariots and 10,000 foot soldiers, that's, that's nothing. They have been utterly decimated, verse 7, made like dust at the threshing. The dust at the threshing is this, is this light little stuff that just blows away with a puff of wind. They've been decimated. And now God, through his servant Elisha, indicates that in his grace, by his grace, Israel in the north is actually going to strike these powerful Arameans and then gives them further indication of God's will to be with Israel. Gives them this sign, verse 18, take the arrows, strike the ground, and he struck it three times. And that really upset Elisha. The man of God was angry with him. You should have struck five or six times. Now, how is he to know, we could say? I mean, Here's this, we, we're tempted to think, this poor king of Israel, he's given a bunch of arrows, he's told to strike the ground, well, at least he strikes it three times. 
But we fail to see that already it's been clear to the king that the servant of Yahweh, by placing his hand on the king's hand when he shot the arrow, and already the indication that the bow and arrow business has to do with how much they're going to crush their enemies, it's been clear enough that the king should take those arrows and just smash that ground as a belief and a faith in the ability of Yahweh to crush his enemies. The issue is not only the short-sightedness of the king, but the lack of faith on the part of the king in Yahweh's power and ability. Basically, this is, ye have not because you ask not. This is, this is the principle here, a lack of faith, even in the face of, and in the audible promise of a prophet of God. And so, but nonetheless, he says, you shall strike Aram only three times. Now note that. We say that's such a little detail. Yep, it's a detail. Hold on to it. But now we come to what the kids, kids, are you ready? Maybe I've lost you. The kids are here tonight. Wake up now. All right. Because here in verse 20, big kids and little kids, um, wake up. Uh, Elisha died. Well, that's sad. And it is sad. And they buried him. Now, then we're told this little story. So here's likely a cave. It, it's probably not a pile of dirt, right? So it's probably a cave with a stone, maybe kind of like Jesus was buried in. He was an honored prophet of Israel. And even though he wasn't listened to, obviously the king esteemed him. So likely when Elisha died, he was buried with some measure of honor in a place that was a a burial chamber, if you will. And we learn that at some point later that the Moabites, not just the Arameans, but the Moabites too, this other foreign people were marauding the the land of Israel and they'd come every spring uh, just in time to take the crops and leave Israel with nothing. And it happened that there were some men burying a man. So this is a funeral uh, procession. You know, uh, they don't have cars to line up with flags and go to the cemetery, but that's the idea here. You know, there's probably a funeral director and, and uh, the families gathered around and some men had come to, to put this, uh, this poor fellow uh, to bury him. Well, they were burying him in his, uh, in his own, uh, probably idea of his own gra- grave, probably not thinking that they would bury him, you know, in some, I mean, they're not going to bury him with Elisha. That's, that's Elisha's. I mean, you don't go to the, <laughs> you don't go to the cemetery, look around for the biggest and best monument and say, well, when I die, I want you to put my bones in there, Right. So that's not what's going on here. They're burying this fellow somewhere else. They're, this is the funeral procession, but they're in the middle of the funeral and the committal service when word comes that the Moabites are coming and they know what happens when the Moabites come around. They tend to kill you if they find you. And uh, so they come and so they're in a hurry. And so in their hurry, verse 21, they cast or, or throw. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they're in a rush. They take this fellow baby in, in shroud or whatever, and they just take him in one, two, three, and in he goes into Elisha's uh, burial chamber. And they running, they're off. But the strangest thing is, is they're running away from the rotting band. They're looking behind them. And 
the guy that was just thrown in the grave with Elisha is running too. <laughs> and he's pulling off the shroud saying, wait, wait for me. <laughs> and uh, it's amazing. It's the type of thing that, you know, if you're skeptical, you think, oh, come on, what's this in the Bible for? What's this got to do with? When the man touched the bones of Elisha, he became alive and stood up on his feet. Well, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Here it is. In the middle of the story of the stubbornness of Israel's sin, things are not looking up. We've had not one but two more kings who walked in the sons of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And we know that they're not even to the worst part yet. And yet here is a, another foreshadowing, a precursor that Israel may be persistent in the stubbornness of her sin. But what God has declared in terms of his covenant love will come to pass. And like that man made alive, Israel too will one day be made alive. God can raise the dead. It's not about somehow, you know, some magical power of Elisha's bones. Elisha, as the man of God, that was his title, man of God, doesn't mean he was particularly godly. It means that he was a unique ambassador, prophet, proclaimer of God. Elisha was so closely associated with God and with God's covenant love that in God's grace and kindness, he gave a little picture to Israel that was being overrun by the Arameans and by the marauding bands of the Moabites so that the people probably thought, what hope is there at all? And word starts to get out. A guy who was thrown in Elisha's grave stood up and walked. Maybe the God of Israel, the Yahweh, maybe he's still around. Maybe he can still help us. Thirdly and finally in this second part, we've seen dying Elisha and a short-sighted king. We've seen a dead Elisha's bones and a dead man walking And finally, we learn in verses 22 to 25 of Elisha's word and Elisha's God of grace. Uh, This is almost like a little afterthought, you would think, in verses 22 to 25. But now Hazael, king of Aram. Well, if you've been tracking, we've learned a lot about Hazael by now. And what's most amazing about Hazael is not only, it's not merely that he was so successful Uh, leading the Arameans to crush Israel in the north, but the fact that Haziel had been spoken of many, many, many years before, perhaps before he was even alive, by Elijah the prophet when God met Elijah at Mount Sinai. God spoke of this fellow named Haziel all the way back then, and here is God being faithful to his judging word. He remember, according to the name that he revealed to Moses when he declared his name, who will not forget the iniquity. God deals with sin, sin in his people. And God appointed Hazael, king of Aram, and his son, Ben-Hadad, 
to be a means of judgment upon sinful Israel. God was not standing by in grace and just looking the other way while they sinned. He was constantly opposing their sin, constantly bringing judgment upon them. And it is fearful in verses 22 and 23 that God is faithful to his word. And in the same mind, we as Christ's church need to be a little bit scared that what Jesus says to the churches in Revelation, he carries out. He actually does it. He's serious about sin. But once again, and thankfully, the chapter ends on one more picture of God's grace. Verse 23. But Yahweh was gracious to them and had compassion on them. Do you hear those words? If, If you're listening, you ought to be thinking God's covenant name that he revealed to his people. Gracious, compassionate, abounding in loving kindness. He was gracious, compassionate, turned to them these these rebellious loathsome people why because of his covenant with Abraham Isaac and Jacob and would not bring them to ruin or cast them from his presence until now wow Israel's already been hauled off by the Assyrians at now dispersed And Yahweh still hasn't changed. What an extraordinary God. And I'm sure that tonight you are thankful with me that this God is our God who has entered into covenant with us by the blood of his son, which we remembered this morning at the Lord's table. And what an encouragement to us in spite of the stubbornness of sin and persistence of it in our lives in this world, in the church, that the persistent, covenant-keeping love of our God is stronger still. Praise be to him. Let's pray. So, God, we thank you once again. We're so grateful for, in a sense, you're recording the monotony of sin in the Old Testament. When we're reading through our Bibles, we, we get a little bit weary of it, But what a gift, because how else would we know that you understand the world that we live in and the reality of sin? We are so encouraged tonight that you are a God who never, never fails in his word. We worship you for it and take heart because you have promised us that whoever believes in your Son will not perish, but have everlasting life. In this we rejoice. Amen.